The Totally Super Podcast is coming to Geeks Radio. Justin and Arthur review every superhero movie ever made. Search for Totally Super Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Totally Super Podcast 2017. Warning, the following contains plot spoilers and naughty language. That means explicit content. And the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Welcome to the second to last pop-off. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. What the hell are we doing today? Uh, today, um, we're wrapping up our uh, conversation about uh, Joss Whedon, our five-year-long conversation with five-year break in between. Um, Good God, <laughs> we are. And I have a feeling we're going to be wrapping it up with a with a, some rather, like, I feel I feel confident in saying that our final conversation about Joss Whedon is not going to happen the way that we would expect it to two years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that one, I think it's safe to say that that fandom and we'll talk about this um, in the next episode, um, but fandom comes in waves, right? I mean, you can't. Mm-hmm. always be the number like my favorite band is is i always say it's bare naked ladies and, and that's pretty much true but when a new eminem album comes out i'm not listening to mm-hmm. bare naked ladies for a while um until yeah. they come out with something new and they've had a couple albums uh uh are me and our men for instance um that uh that you don't really like and so you 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 skip over and 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 you kind of fill your time with something else. Um, when we started this, uh, when we started Buffy the Vampire Slayer five years ago, um, I think it's safe to say that I was in much more of the uber fan of Joss Whedon um, than mm-hmm. I am now. I mean, it was, and certainly there was a point at, at that time you were still doing um, your Buffy group, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that we get to a point where. We're, we're like, we are in the throes of, of being the ultimate fan. Let me name my children after you, um, which I did. Um, yeah. uh, and and then other things come and go and take the place. So I think that uh, one of the things that our conversation has done for me, at least, has uh, allowed me to sort of intellectualize the the goods and the bads of, uh, of Joss's Legendarium. How about you? Mm-hmm. Um, much the same way. The uh, I think uh, speaking. Uh, I mean, well, and again, and this is something we touched on. Uh, I think it was in the last episode too. Um, in light of certain developments that have happened in the real world, uh, concerning Joss Whedon and everything, there is all of a sudden we find ourselves in a situation where it's like, okay, are we talking about the writer or are we talking about the person? Um, you know, with a whole crap ton of provisos and everything that go into that. Um, so speaking in terms of my relationship to his work, uh, there was a period in time in which he was absolutely the top in that Buffy angel, that style of writing was absolutely the top of the top for me. And I think that is still largely the case. It has influenced me in, uh, particularly the, the, uh, the theme of undercutting a, undercutting a trope in order to make that trope as powerful as it was when it was first introduced, uh, I think is a really, it's a very skillful uh, writer's tool that I hope, uh, I can only hope that I will be able to incorporate into my own toolbox to the same degree that Whedon was able to. Um, yeah, I think uh, some people have done, much like uh, much like with Tolkien, now you go back and read Lord of the Rings and it, you know, at least for me, I'm just like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. There are parts of it where it's boring as hell, and there have been better writer, there have been better fantasy writers since Tolkien. But it is indisputable that Tolkien is a major, major milestone in the evolution of fantasy writing. I mean, you, I read Lord of the Rings now, and I still think, wow, there's a lot of incredible stuff in this, and there's also a whole lot of boring stuff. There have been writers since Tolkien who I think have done it better. There are betty, better fantasy writers uh, but it is indisputable that Tolkien is a major milestone in the evolution of fantasy writing. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think Whedon is a major milestone in the evolution of both television and film in just screen writing, period. Well, and and I think that, you know, to to the controversy surrounding the man, um the the man of Joss Whedon. Uh I would go so far as to say that that, you know, he does have there there are criticisms that can be levied against him as a person. Um um and have been by one person, by by, you know, uh an ex-wife. Um which is, you know, that's going to be a, a difficult situation to start with. Um, and their criticisms mm-hmm. can be levied against him um, uh, as a, a proponent of feminism and that he um, has done some, there's been some anti-feminist things in his, in his work, uh, mm-hmm. specifically the treatment, for instance, of, uh, of women in Avengers Age of Ultron uh, is, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's problematic. Um, but I think that, one of the things that he did that I want to give him credit for is that he, when other male writers were not, he was deliberately um, being inclusive of of strong three dimensional was uh, women, not accidentally. Mm-hmm. Not it's, it's, <laughs> was he being inclusive of strong three dimensional wizards? Wizards, yes, yes, yeah, because um, yeah, because nobody else in the late '90s was writing about strong three-dimensional wizards. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, but I mean, he did. He he said, you know what? I want to make women strong and and powerful, and I want to have a uh, homosexual character in my in my work, and I want to, mm-hmm. um, I I want to, you know, he he spoke a lot about autism. He spoke a lot like he. This is a this is a man who who. On his best days, um, has been an activist uh, both in his work and in his life for good things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good does not necessarily forgive bad, um, but I do want to, you know, to his credit, say that he has at least in his media advanced um, uh, equality. Um, yeah, which, I would agree with that. Which is, you and know, I, which is noble. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, it is one of those. Sort of things. Just because, just because there's the metaphorical asterisk next to somebody's name doesn't mean you can't necessarily talk about them. Um, yeah. In that same way, I, I feel comfortable in saying that both you and I um, are continuously striving to evolve into being the best feminists we can be, while at the same time acknowledging that, like as you said a few episodes back, it's like, are, are we actually going to start mansplaining feminism? Yes, yes, we are. Okay, <laughs> like <laughs> acknowledging that. Um, no, I agree with you. There is. Uh, it is hard to say how much of Joss Whedon as a person is quote unquote good man and how much of it is scoundrel. Um, I believe in general, those lines are blurred far more often than we think. Um, However, I do feel uh, there is a certain degree, uh, more than a certain degree, a fair degree to which we can speak about the writing and, you know, apart from the artist. Some people don't feel that's possible. I completely understand that. Uh, you know, the uh, and there's certainly a limit. As you said, it's kind of hard to look at Roman Polanski's work. Um, you know, certainly it's, uh, it's very difficult and tricky to look back at, say, The Cosby Show, uh, sure. which was a massively, like, that, um, that formulated, that helped me so much growing up. I mean, I grew up overseas, uh, surrounded by other Foreign Service Americans. Like, pretty much my only understanding of a black family was the Cosby Show. And while I'm sure that in and of itself was would certainly, you know, carry some problems with it, at the same point, I'm sort of, you know, I find myself thinking, you know, as far as, you know, model families go you could probably do a whole lot worse in terms of like how that formulated my thoughts as a kid growing up. Absolutely. Um, But at the same time, it's, (laughs) I'm certainly not going to begrudge any TV station for saying, yeah, we can't really run those reruns anymore. Like, yeah. Well, and I, (laughs) I so do. I think that, um, I think that, you know, and one, you know, for, for those of you listening in the future, 
um, because some of you will be. Uh, just to put in perspective, we are talking in uh, the we, future. Well, because I because I think my I fear that we run the risk, right, of going like we just said, Joss Whedon. We we just brought up Roman Polanski and and Bill Cosby as a oh, comparison. Right. Yeah, we should we should, put, we should put and this on the spectrum. There are people in the yeah. future going, "What did Joss do? Um, <laughs> uh, Joss Joss cheated on his wife and 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 conceivably uh, uh, utilized his his." maybe hero worship that would happen going on with him um to hook up with young actresses um and 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 what allegedly by the way um these are these are allegations made by his wife that he has not um answered they may they may be true they may not be true um mm-hmm. uh but you know he's not bill cosby or roman Polanski. let's be yes there's super yeah we're, we're clear being very clear on that. that that's a good point um and um. and you know i i think that that the the thing that makes it hard to separate uh the the man from it is that he has been you know he was the male mouthpiece of feminism for a while yeah. um mm-hmm. and you know it now becomes more difficult uh to go yeah but was he also a womanizer at the same time i hate the term womanizing by the way can i just put that out there like 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 hey i'm i'm izing people i uh, I've always it's always made no, me I can see that that makes it's, sense it's always just so kind of like, like word yeah it's it's an icky word um it's an <laughs> icky thing to do I guess uh yeah um but I I think that that he has done with his I think the thing is he has done with his art as a man if that makes sense as a person mm-hmm. he has yeah. used his art to be a certain kind of person um and now when that person gets called into question, it calls into question to the art. I would say that he's probably a complicated person. Nobody, you have to have demons to write the kind of, you know, stuff that he writes. He's got some mm. dark shit in his soul that he is, that he is working through, um, clearly. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where the best art comes from, right? It's, you know, the, the happiest people don't make the greatest art. You know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's hard to go like, Art comes from pain, and and you mm-hmm. know I want to, I want to sort of leave the conversation there and and just make it about the art. But I also don't want people to conflate yeah. you know anything that he did with um with you know the bad super bad guys out there, um, mm-hmm. um and uh and just look at his art as as the art created by a complicated uh human being who uh sometimes did not try his best to be a good man. And other times, uh, clearly has tried his best to be a good man. Um, I'd, and- I'd go with that. I'd say, and certainly for the purposes of this discussion too, um, like we said, there is a whole legitimate debate that can be had about the degree to which you can separate art from artist. Um, yeah. For the purposes of this, I am, for right now, I am content saying, if I examined the, if I examined this work as it was, like if you just removed the name Joss Whedon from it completely like it was just by an unknown artist would the you know just some anonymous stuff uh would the work have ended up being beneficial both to art as a whole and to society and i think based on that alone my feeling is still a resounding yes to that i agree i agree Um, very much and i remain Uh, so i'm still i'm still complete and don't get me wrong there are still problems within the work itself but overall I feel uh, I feel like it was a tremendous step forward in a lot of ways. And I remain a fan of the man and I remain a fan of the artist until such time that, you know, until such time that I feel that he is more villain than hero, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and at that time, maybe I will reevaluate. But so far, yeah. you know, I... Th- I've, you know, the bloom is off the rose maybe a little. He's not totally hero, but my in my opinion, he has... While not always being a champion, he has championed uh, um, many times, and I think that you know we we wanted him to we wanted him to to be a he's maybe more like Angel than than we care to admit. Um, mm-hmm. uh, either way, uh, he keeps on fighting. What do you by, mean he can't dance? By yes, uh, by making uh, um, much ado about nothing. The Avengers, Avengers: Age of Ultron, um, mm-hmm. are um, and and Dollhouse. Um, and, uh, the first uh, and the beginning of agents of shield. So really briefly, um, what did you think of his, uh, of, of his adaptation of much ado about nothing? Um, 
it was for what it was, which was a, hey, let's get all my friends together to make a movie over three days time at my house. I thought it was charming. Um, you know, I thought uh, there were some moments in it that really jumped out to me. Um, I mean, I was, you know, in terms of how it stands up in terms of just like the canon of Shakespearean adaptations, um, unfortunately, the he has the only other thing to compare it to really is Brano and Emma Thompson's Much Ado About Nothing that came out in the 90s, which is um, a phenomenal, just a transcendent work. Uh, and and let's call mind. it out Much with Ado About Nothing. Yeah, with the exception of Keanu Reeves. And yeah, go yes. ahead. I was just say an important uh, an important uh, piece of Shakespearean uh, work to us personally. In that, oh yes, that's true. That, that's that how is we where met. we met on a mm -hmm. on a production of Much Ado About Nothing. Um, yeah. I just want to throw that out there. I would say that I prefer Whedon's to Branagh's. Okay. Uh, um, I think that what Branagh Branagh brought a um, uh, like this. A, a, a spectacularly, incredibly well done, much ado, much ado about nothing that elevates the material. Um, Joss, who who you've commented about how he likes to undercut, he undercut the material, and he made the people in Much Ado About Nothing much more people than I've ever considered them to be. Um, mm. And the idea that Shakespeare can be brought down to that personal level is something that I love. Um, and I think that, I think that it is, uh, I am more emotionally aff affected by the rom, because really it's a rom-com and as a rom-com, yeah. it works, uh, so well in, in this highly personalized version. I can get how, how people, especially mm -hmm. maybe Shakespeare scholars would not love it. Um, but I think that it is, uh, maybe the most accessible Shakespeare movie ever made. Um, hmm. to to uh, just as a watch to to you know, Shakespeare didn't used to be amazing literature. You just used to just be a night out at the theater. Um, and I and, think the uh, I mean, certainly I won't. Um, you know, far be it from me to dispute your your personal experience of it. And that's one of the things that I love about, like my personal belief is anyone who says no, there's a right way and a wrong way to do Shakespeare is full of it. And I want to be really clear. I um, so didn't I, say best. I said most accessible, which is yeah. That's, or that's but and key. also it's you, I mean it's Shakespeare like any good theater, like any good piece of art. At the end of the day, it becomes about personal experience, yeah. and to a certain degree, we can call something good or bad based on you know if if something gets a ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, we can pretty reasonably say that that's a good movie, whereas if something gets a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes, we can to a certain degree say that it's a bad movie. But you start getting into those 50-60% sort of things where some people like it and some people don't, then the words good and bad actually, it, it becomes much harder to be, a, you know, to objectively grade something like that. And at the end of the day, it comes down to what did you enjoy about it and why? So like what you're describing with that, like for me... Um, and part of it's because, it, or part of it might be because, you know, I've done a bunch of Shakespeare, I've studied it, um, and therefore it's a lot easier for me to emotionally c connect to Shakespeare, um, even or especially when it's done in a heightened state. Um, for me, I saw it a lot, you know, when Shakespeare is done at, like you said, that very low-key undercut level, uh, to me it means that there's a lot of wasted opportunities within the language. Uh, but that's just me. However, for you, what you're describing is to you, that's what makes the characters more human is when they're removed from that elevated plane. Um, well, and, and I think there are two ways to approach, you know, Shakespeare and and the way that I've approached it as a uh, as a performer um, has always been to colloquialize uh, the speaking of the language. There's a, there's a, a, a way of doing Shakespeare where, you know, every every comma is going to mean a thing and like there that where this is the way that shakespeare is done um mm -hmm. and the way i've always tried to do shakespeare is certainly enjoy and enrich the language the language is meant to be savored on the tongue if you're not chewing just a little bit of scenery when you're doing shakespeare you're missing an opportunity but mm -hmm. um i have i think that's a nice way of putting it it's not so much a oh it's the wrong way to do it it's like oh you might be missing an opportunity there yeah um, I like that. but i've but i've always enjoyed um 
you know, there is another way of, of, of saying Shakespeare should be done, which is to say that while the language is beautiful and wonderful, um, it is off-putting to to audiences um, that may want to reject Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and I have always approached my performance of Shakespeare to go, okay, I'm performing for those people, um, and yeah. I and no, I want and valid. I want to make it so that in the way I'm saying it. I am not only making it understandable, but also personal. And that's mm-hmm. always been sort of the way that I've I've approached it. And there are Shakespeare, you know, scholars that would say, you know, you're an idiot for doing it that way, but that's always the way that I've wanted to do it and to varying degrees of success of success. Um and I Ooh, think that- let me suggest a um sorry, it just occurred to me, uh when you were talking about the uh, you know, like the most accessible Shakespeare ever made. Um, I totally understand that. Let me suggest a challenge to that, and that would be Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which I remember specifically seeing in high school. Uh, and my favorite part about it was as I was watching it, as Romeo drank the poison and died, the number of gasps from all the other high school uh, girls in the audience who never knew the story but had gone because, hey, it's Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Um, and so maybe it was only acceptable specifically to the people at that time, but it was, uh, and certainly, um, they did a fine job with the acting, but they didn't handle the language any more quote unquote better. Than, yeah. I, uh, I, I, I always felt that that was a little screamy. It was a little just, mm-hmm. a, Oh yeah. It was, it was a bit it was screamy. tremendously screamy. Yeah. But I would say that it has, uh, my favorite addition ever made to, uh, to Shakespeare in uh, having the moment uh, after he drinks the poison, be that she wakes up. Oh my up gosh! And her waking up first. I can't before he I dies. Can't see that scene? Any like that scene yeah. is? It's what we keep talking about. It's not enough to stab. You have to twist the knife. Yeah. That is the knife twist. And I'm just like, I if I were directing, I can't direct that show any other way. It's yeah. They discovered something, and I'm sure it had been done in other shows before. But for the, that was the first time I'd ever seen it. It was like, oh my god, that makes it so much worse. Yeah. Which of course makes it so much more awesome. I know. Um, but, so uh, uh, so um, uh, I also wonder to to put a a, a button on the much ado about nothing. Mm-hmm. I might feel the way I feel about it because it is in its own way the uh the happy ending to the Fred and Wesley story. Um Ah, uh, I could see and, that. Yeah. And I wonder if I didn't bring it bring that with me into the the movie. Like when they kiss at the end, I am I'm over the moon when they get a happy ending at the end of the movie. More over mm-hmm. the moon than I should be <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> Um, but I'm over the moon. I'm like, yeah, I've got tears in my eyes. I got goosebumps when I'm getting goosebumps now talking about it. And I think you, uh, it's- you do know, you do know that floating out there, I haven't seen it yet, but there's a, um, there's a recording of the Royal Shakespeare company's version of much ado about nothing that featured, uh, David Tennant and Catherine Tate. Right. I, I know. And you can, and you can watch it on YouTube. Yeah. I've seen pieces of it. Um, yeah. Which I I never because I can imagine a lot of other people would probably get the same. I feeling. never I I didn't care that much for Doctor Donna. Um. Uh. Mm-hmm. But you know I can see how people feel that same way. It's the same thing, right? I I bring to yeah. it, I like that was you know that failed romance that that never got to come to fruition. I finally get to see these guys have a happy ending. Damn it, that's Fred and Wesley. Don't tell me different. Yeah. Which which at once is both one of the tremendous gifts and tremendous curses of being an actor is if you become known for a character like it is what a wonderful thing it is there i mean shoot just watch that original uh trekkies documentary where uh where jimmy Dewan talks about literally saving a woman's life yeah from uh from suicide because she loved scotty so much like that is that is an incredible thing but also knowing no matter what else you do you're Scotty. Even if people are able to see, yeah, um, you know, like uh, William Shatner has gone on to have an incredible career post Kirk. I mean, his Denny Crane is phenomenal. F- fucking look at but look at Patrick Stewart. Degree, there's yeah, Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart is- but there's always a certain degree of oh, but that's you know Patrick Stewart. If he if Patrick Stewart in any other movie, if he ever pulls his shirt down, instantly you're just thinking, oh, <laughs> look, he just did Picard. Yay. Yeah. Or, or you know, if he does something amazing, it's always you know and different. It's compared to 
you know, and he said, mm-hmm. you know, there's a the documentary that he did, uh, um, uh, the captains. He was upfront about. It. He said it took a long time for me to come to come to grips with this, but no matter what else I do for the rest of my life, in my obituary, the first thing it will say is Star Trek captain. That's yeah, just, uh, you know. yeah. Um, okay, so moving on from uh, all from, right, moving on from from much ado, we get uh, the Avengers, um, which uh, is so important and so. Mm-hmm. I mean, you like it, right? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, so good. So, I mean, defined what, d- d- first of all, define the Marvel Universe, which next to Star Wars is maybe the most powerful cinematic creation of all time. Like, I, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and or not, what you, impressed you me the most whether or not with it's it good, is, but. Yeah. The, uh, the thing is, that movie had all the opportunities. The, the greatest danger when you're doing a team-up film is how, with, especially in superhero world, uh, with every hero or villain that you add, you run the risk of bloat. Uh, I mean, my goodness, look at Spider-Man 3. Uh, Spider-Man 3 yeah. could have been a great... Spider-Man could have been a great movie, except they had, at one point, three villains in it. because And frequently, it's because the studio says, you know, well, we got to put these things in there. Um, what you have is... For the first time, you had all these characters who, of course, everyone had been expecting the Avengers, but all these characters who were titans in their own films all coming together. I think one of the things that impressed me the most about it was that he managed to make sure every character got a moment, not just a moment of doing something cool, but you actually, everyone's character was advanced a little bit further, um, and there wasn't, I... It could be argued that, like, maybe the movie's, like, 10, 15 minutes longer than it needs to be. But for the most part, it felt extraordinarily tight when you compare it to other, you know, huge, big team films that just sometimes seem to go on forever. Well, and it seems to me that Joss made it a a, a goal of, of his to have it be that, that the movie was as interesting, if not more interesting, when they're just sitting around. How do these guys, yeah. how do these guys in it, like these guys are Titans. So how do they interact with each other? Well, like, it's, th- it's the kitchen table effect. Yeah. We talk, like to me, the Firefly was the kitchen table. Um, um, the, the moment and the thing, well, what blew my mind too was because I had known that Joss was a good writer at this point. Um, what I did not realize was that he had, and I knew he was able to direct small, intimate moments really, really well. Um, Avengers, to me, showed that he was able to, from a uh, cinematography and directing standpoint, direct massive epic really well. The Battle of New York, um, the moment with the, you know, when Banner hulks out and the camera starts spinning and he crushes the battleship, you know, the, the floating battleship and the camera spins around all of them and we have that iconic Avengers moment. Uh, it was... It was more huge. It's everything than that you ever anything. wished for. Yeah. Yeah. It was everything you ever wished for. And it was far larger on a, on an exponential scale than anything Whedon had ever done on screen before that moment. And he By knocked far. it out of the park. Well, and the other uh, and thing. And then the, the rest e- of the battle. And then the rest of the battle, he did a phenomenal job, not just through the filming, but making sure every character had a crucial role. Like everyone did something important. Um, he handled the massive battle really, really well. So to me, that actually. Um, he, that was his first truly, like, that was his make or break film to become a absolute A-list director. Um, and, and, and ended up, ended up, you know, top of the heap for, you know, I, I think it's the second highest growing, second or third highest grossing film of all time now. Yeah. Uh, maybe third mm-hmm. after Avatar and, and Force Awakens. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the, the financials and the fact that, that, that it was, what we always liked about Buffy, right? What what gets you with Buffy? It's heart and humor. It's a funny ass mm-hmm. movie. It is oh, a yeah. funny, funny movie. Um, and, and I but think- also it's it is funny that stems from the characters, not yeah. just about the characters making jokes or getting into wacky situations. I mean, to me, the the absolute uh, the defining joke in it about the style was uh, you know when Captain America is going after uh, going after Thor. Um, and uh, I think, 
uh, I forget who it was, but Black you Widow know, says, you know, the Black Widow says, you know, be careful, he's a god, and he says, ma'am, there's only one god, and he doesn't dress like that. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's it's funny. It's a joke, but it's also a joke that literally only Captain America could have told. But and and again, I you know, I just like hearing Joss. Right, I just enjoy when mm-hmm. when. When, you know, when Nick Fury goes, let me know if Ultimate Power would like a magazine or something. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like every, everybody is their most them in that movie. Mm-hmm. I like, now I haven't seen Ragnarok yet. Ragnarok, at the time of recording this, Ragnarok comes out in three days to astounding reviews. But I would yeah, say that I'm up to so that point, to that. I liked uh, I liked Tony more in this movie than I liked him in any movie with him beforehand. I like Cap best in this movie. Thor by far is the best he's ever been. Mm-hmm. Hulk is better. Everybody's their best version of themselves in this movie. This should be the movie yeah. where they're not allowed to be the best versions of themselves because they only get a little time. And yet mm-hmm. he manages to do that. So that's he follows he that up. He makes the most out of all of it. He follows this that up. This is also the movie. Um, Sorry, go on. This is also the movie that creates... Um, I mean, the seeds had been there, but uh, I think no one realized just how much they all loved Coulson until Coulson was taken from them. Yeah. Uh, Coulson's death scene is uh, phenomenal in its, it shows that Whedon understood restraint. The whole, the whole thing of Coulson as he's dying says, it's all right. They just needed some, they needed someone to. And then he doesn't say avenge. Yeah. Whedon actually trusts the viewers to fill in the blanks, which is almost never done. Um, and even as a writer, uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, if I were like, I could, I could at my best day see myself coming up with that, you know, writing a scene like that and then thinking, oh my gosh. And then Colson's dying and he says, oh, it's all right. They just need someone to avenge. And then boom. And then that's like, that's the moment where everyone goes, oh, but I know for a fact that if I were writing that scene, I would not have thought to not say the word. Yeah, because it would no, be more agreed. powerful. Um, yeah. And 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 that was, to, that was a teachable moment for me. To to all of you out there going, why are they going so fast through it? We're gonna have a whole podcast. Like this, this movie is going to eventually have an hour long podcast that we are gonna. Oh have yeah, that's right. About. We're gonna so, come back to this. Yeah, one, yeah but so. trust me, in, in years to come, you'll hear more about it. He follows uh, that up uh, with the pilot episode of Agents of Shield. Um, a show that he uh, that he helped create and then stepped away from, leaving it in the uh, hands of his uh, of his brother and sister in law, um. um, who continue to uh, to work heavily on the show. Um, uh, and we haven't talked about. Uh, we'll throw in that he also did Doctor Horrible sing along blog. We're not going to talk about that much today because uh, in uh, about a month's time, you're going to hear us talk about it a ton on the Totally Super Podcast. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that later. Um, so Agents of Shield uh, is a show, a pilot that's semi okay, a first season that's kind of rocky. Um, but uh, have well, you been a, watching with a doozy of a Shyamalan twist, though? Yeah, have you been um, watching? I I am caught up to I think season to the end of season three. So I've been I've been watching. It's the sort of thing that like with the with the amazing amount of good TV that's out there, um, the pace of it never. It's one that I will watch in spurts. Uh, yeah. Even at its best for me, the pace of it was never enough to just keep me wanting to come back to it. Um, that being said, I think the what was wonderfully groundbreaking about the first season was suddenly we had a television show with a storyline that was actually mirroring uh, or was deeply connected to the movie that had come out because the end of uh, season one went hand in hand with Captain America Winter Soldier. Yep. And all of a sudden, I I mean, to my recollection, that was the first time that there was a, and the fact that they timed out the twist in, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to be specifically after the events of the movie, when the movie was released. Like, it was the first time that we had that level of coordination across mediums like that. I would say that, I would um, say that, I, I would I would say it's the third time that I would see. I would see the first time being uh, X-Files Fight the Future. That movie came out in between seasons uh, of the X-Files. Okay. And, and I would and I would say the effects specifically of, of Star Trek Generations um, affecting uh, what happened in Deep Space Nine. Um, oh yeah, that could, in, in that, and in that the, the, the crash of the Enterprise 
uh, the crash of the Enterprise made Worf come to Deep Space Nine, where then they had the Defiant, which then the Defiant with Worf on it show up in Star Trek First Contact. Um, I think that's that, true. that is that. Yeah. that is, um, but, and actually, now that I think of it, the uh, the Matrix reloaded uh, while there wasn't a TV show. The video game of Enter the Matrix, uh, which I enjoyed a lot more than the reviews gave it credit for. Um, the video game of Enter the Matrix, basically, it takes place during the movie, but it doesn't follow Neo. It follows these two other characters who are doing all this other stuff that intersects the plot line of the movie throughout the game. Uh, so that was that so, was some sort of doing a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Of, it, it, uh, it, it was it was Rosencrantz, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are in the Matrix. Yes, that was it exactly. <laughs> That's a play I'd watch, by the way. Um, I would totally uh, watch that. Oh, now I could. Oh, you could do a whole Hamlet about in the Matrix because there's so much questioning about you know i could be bound in a nutshell count myself the king of infinite space okay sorry i'm going off sorry i would i would I, I would i would say this about agents of shield that it came out at a time where superhero shows were starting to have a renaissance gotham was coming out and arrow was coming out and flash was about to come out and i would say mm-hmm. at the time it came out it was the most inferior of all of those shows um um i would say that it has now evolved if you haven't been watching it it is uh superior to anything that's going on the dc universe on cw um which is a shame because that has been historically awesome and is less so now Mm -hmm. those shows are all lesser from what they were if you watch the first three seasons of of arrow especially first two it's compelling as hell um but uh but has has you know taken a, a downturn they all kind of have while shield is consistently better and better and better and better every season. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I would say give Shield a, a chance if you're on a, a, a mid if you're in a midsummer break um, and your shows are all on hiatus uh, and you want something to binge. Um, Shield is definitely worth it. Um, it's just uh, uh, awesome. Um, hi, doggy. Um, we uh, <laughs> hi, Kaylee. Uh, uh, we follow we follow that up with uh, um, Avengers: Age of Ultron, which is a divisive film um in many um, circles well i feel like what there's a very specific trap that avengers uh avoided so well it fell headlong into in age of ultron uh that is a massively bloated film uh to whedon's credit my understanding is the studio i mean Age of Ultron was meant to set up a whole crap ton of other films. So he had to like all the stuff about, you know, Thor having his vision and everything that I mean, that clearly is meant to set up. That was meant to set up Ragnarok. It did not belong in that. It did not belong in that movie if that movie was just meant to be seen as a standalone. Oh, yes. And and random Andy Serkis scene that's to set up Black Panther. Um, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, th- there's certain, certainly that, and stuff is there to clearly set up civil war. Um, mm-hmm. um, I see that that's there. Um, I would say that, uh, that that's a film that is more personal in some ways. Uh, the, the plight of Ultron, the story of Ultron, the ultimate fate of Ultron, the, 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 creation of and the plight of the vision um in that mm-hmm. movie uh, uh scarlet witch um there's so much to love and everything that happened yeah. at, at at hawkeye's house and the 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 mundanity of of hawkeye's alternate existence oh yeah i should say i loved the heck out of ultron um you know i think it was I probably would have loved the heck out of it even more if it was half an hour shorter, but I loved yeah. the heck out of it. I th- I'm um, finding James Spader I, was yeah James Spader was an un was an was a surprising yet uncanny choice for Ultron. Uh, I'd I just ab- especially when we see Ultron in the uh like you go back to the comics and you read like you know Ultron and like the original Secret Wars and everything and it's clearly he's much more of that 1980s like I am a killer robot destroy all humans um Spader brought a level and, and you know through Whedon's writing brought a level of uh much more philosophical menace to Ultron than there had been before um and I think that 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 Hawkeye had been if anyone's underserved by the first uh, Avengers, it's Hawkeye. 
Um, it would have been Hawkeye. You're absolutely right. Hawkeye is my favorite character in Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's everything with the fact that he has, you know, um, a wife and kids. And, and the fact that, you know, in a movie like this and you have a housewife and she's strong and it's totally okay that she's a housewife. Like, yeah. like, and I feel like it doesn't make her weak and she's not, you know, just, you know, sitting at home, you know, be, you know, it would be, people have criticized for, oh, of course she's a housewife. That's not very feminist. Why can't you be a feminist housewife? Why is mm -hmm. that, uh, why well, is it, that it, not an okay thing to do? It falls into the danger of, um, when, and I think it comes out of the, when you have such a, uh, an inequality of number of male characters and female characters in film as a whole. Um, and that's the same with uh, with minority characters as well. Uh, it puts the onus on every single female character to suddenly become a representation of the gender as a whole. Um, in the same way that, uh, you know, like for instance, there are so few Native American characters in film, sure. in video games, anything like that. So every single time there's one that comes out, the pressure is uh, so hugely on them, which to me is sort of like the, um, it's not just about writing. The key to, you know, equality in uh, in art now, it's not just about writing strong female characters. It's about writing as many strong female characters as there are strong male characters, which then allows you, and once you reach that, then it's okay to have weak female characters, just as okay it is to have weak male characters because there's plenty of representation. Yeah, I would say that I would say that the 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 difference here is that, you know, yeah, she's she's a, a mom at home raising the kids, but she's not weak. She's got strength and 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 a a a resolution to her. Um Oh no, that, very true. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that yeah. uh yeah, I just meant sort of as a as a general whole, but uh, but it would have been. I, me... I guess I guess what I'm saying is it would have been easy to write that character as being weak. And Joss has yes, has true. Joss Joss has up to this point never written um, that I can think of a housewife. Joyce, to a certain degree, no, but Joyce. Although was, that's really more of a house mom. Jo yeah. Joyce, yeah, but Joyce was you know if you really look. Oh, into you it, mean in terms of like somebody who like. Who's, Joyce was an absent mom, though. Is, jo Joyce, Joyce was an absent mom who ran a a, a gallery. Who was who's she? Mm -hmm. She was mom because she was in Buffy's in Buffy's POV. She was mom, but this is someone who is like that's what you're, she you're is. talking about. Somebody who actually who their quote unquote job is they stay home and they run the household. Yeah, that's yeah. not something he's ever done, and he writes her with with a quiet, non quippy, not flashy strength that I think it's it's easy to lose that that's yeah. what she is um uh it's it's you know the stuff about about you know black widow not being able to have babies and being the you know i i think that maybe that's problematic the fact that she's damseled um i think also that was one that that was one that the the backlash against that surprised me a bit um in the sense that for me what i really saw it was was it wasn't so much that they had robbed her of the ability to quote unquote, do something that made you a true woman. It was that they had taken away her choice. Uh, but you know, that was just my own reaction to it. Yeah. Um, well, and, but so also, I, so, so and is, after, and after another story people, where the men have to go rescue the woman. And I think that, you know, that is, that's problematic when like, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know, it would have worked because look at someone else with the same skill set that she has. It absolutely would have worked if Hawkeye was the one who was captured. Yeah. And, and we I met think, his and family and we need to go save him. And Natasha has to go save Hawkeye. I think that's, you know, that yes, would have been that's very true. And again, that goes back to the, the when you've got the inequality between number of male protagonists and female protagonists, it means, I mean, in that sense, in an ideal world, it shouldn't matter that Natasha was the one who needed rescuing instead of Hawkeye. Um, in an ideal world, it's just one character with another, but that's not the world we're in right now. Um, so until we achieve true equality in that those number of things, you kind of do need to acknowledge there is a little bit of a du double standard in that, and that 
and you actively look for the opportunities of um, whenever you're given the choice between do we make the the male or the female the hero, at least for now, err on the side of making the female the hero. Sure, yeah. Um, because if, especially that, with, the, with, the, with, with the eventual hope that eventually the play, with the eventual hope that eventually the playing field will become level and you won't need to do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and I, and I, I, I see those problems despite that. Um, I would say that Avengers age of Ultron is, um, a more rewatchable film for me because it's more complicated and that's just my preference. I can understand people going, Mm -hmm. what are you talking about? The Avengers is perfect, right? The Avengers is perfect. Um, which means you don't need to watch it as much. Yeah, that's exactly. You know, when people go, what's my favorite Star Trek film to rewatch? I like Star Trek Generations because it's a it's a dark, interesting, odd little character piece underneath everything else. And that's what is in there. And plus, I mean, I, you know, Hawkeye is just, you know, I, I like him so much suddenly. Suddenly, like he's just mm-hmm. the most likable guy. Um, yeah. that my, my favorite my favorite bit being go, go. We're an island in the air. There's an army of robots, and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, and that's just a straight up Whedon of calling out the situation. Um, um, and then, and then, um, Marvel broke Joss Whedon. Yes, um, I never read too much into this, but I got like he just got. Um, I mean, Whedon has always had a history of issues with the studio. Um, sure. The, yeah. but I can absolutely, and I think this, and honestly, uh, Avengers age of Ultron seemed like him being much more willing to comply with the studio's wishes than ever before. Um, and I think he did, he, he played as good a hand as he could have with those, with the cards he'd been dealt. Well, and what um, happened is that when the film came out and some people didn't like it, he started apologizing for it. And he started, you know, saying the problems he felt he had with it. He went out and he got kind of defensive and he sort of said, you know, Marvel mm-hmm. was doing too much. Maybe do it. He, he slammed the studio a couple of times and then he just utterly dropped off of social media for months. Yeah. He just, well, and again, it's not like it was a, well, that's an interesting thing. It's not like he had never not slammed the studio before. I remember specifically when, uh, when Angel was canceled, you know, he said, all I can say is, uh, you know, two roads diverge in a yellow wood and I, I took the road less traveled by and they canceled my damn show. <laughs> um, yeah, but it is, as the years have progressed, social media has become a bigger and bigger thing. And suddenly, instead of just saying something to one particular news channel, you post something on Twitter, you say something to any blog. Uh, and suddenly it can go viral and that like, and there's, and it's not just that you can reach more people when you do that. It's that more people further down the chain can reach back to you. Yeah. And that becomes a, and that is a, ah, that's a, that's a nightmare danger situation. Yeah. Um, Well, and, and, and before we talk about what happened next, uh, you reminded me there is something we didn't talk about at all, which I just want to give like three, four minutes to is a dollhouse. Um, I think we talked about Dollhouse a couple episodes ago, though. Um, we touched on it. Well, I just want to say this uh, regarding Dollhouse. Um, the problem with Dollhouse is that the first season is just not very good. Um, and it's problematic. And, and they eventually figure out where they're going. Um, but there is, if you want to accuse Joss's work of misogyny, there's misogyny in, jo- in Dollhouse. Um, yeah. There is, you know, Ultimately, she is being raped. Yeah, she's being prostituted. Yeah, well, there's a um, being prostituted involves a, le- a level of choice that she does not have. Um, she is not only being prostituted, but she is, you know, being roofied for lack of a better, you know, she's being Cosby'd. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that's even, you know, she she lacks the ability to give consent. Yeah, I um, think the I have a feeling when he had the idea for that because it's actually uh, it's something that I've run into um, as well. Well, shoot, we actually we talked about it uh, when you came up to fair the last time. It's when you see a when you see a particular prejudice in the world, 
and you think, I'm going to either satirize this or I'm going to write a story about this situation to make it clear how messed up this situation is, if you're not excruciatingly careful, you end up sending a mixed message and ending up possibly reinforcing uh, reinfor reinforcing the acceptability of the situation um, as opposed to calling it out with the clarity that you wanted to. I have no doubt that Joss Whedon, when he was writing it originally, was like, oh no, like at, at no point was Whedon thinking, you know what, no, I think it's totally okay that this sort of thing would exist. Um, I think he set about, I, I would have to guess that he set about it with the mission of saying, no, this is an effed up situation and we need to delve into it. Um, but the he's show also writing didn't a fun action delve into show. He's right. Yeah. So the show didn't, the show didn't comment as much as it should have. And in that sense, it kind of just became another story with a fair amount. And, you know, it, it just became a, another story. And there was, there was a whole lot of titillation in that first season. Yeah. Um, and so there was that sense of it's like, okay, you're saying it's wrong, but are you? And yeah, yeah and that's that's an easy, easy trap for an artist to fall into. Um, and I think that I think that the show um, at the end of the first season uh, had a DVD only back when that's the way you could binge watch shows is through Netflix DVDs uh, had a DVD right. only uh, episode that never aired on TV that took place like like 10 years later where the world had been destroyed by the stuff that's happening in dollhouse. Like it, you saw this apocalyptic future that they were leaning toward. And then they got a season two and everything started advancing toward that end. Mm. Um, and season two is a great show. Um, when you, when you know what's coming. Um, but I still feel like, they don't make up for the wrongs done in the first season. They, the, what they do is great. And I would say that that dollhouse at the end is a show that I'm incredibly invested in, um, but ended up being, uh, you know, problematic in, in the, it doesn't deal with how rapey it is. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think that ends up being a problem. Okay. Uh, post uh, Ultron, uh, Joss drops off. Like he has yeah. nothing in the pipeline for years he yeah. just disappears outside of doing some you know campaign videos and stuff like that he just um is gone and it's really interesting because he had never been gone i mean since the 80s he had never been gone and he just wasn't doing anything at all um and there was really the sense that marvel broke joss whedon that working the studio hmm. system brought, broke Joss Whedon. Um, we, and I wanted to like I that is a narrative that while I don't I don't fully disbelieve it, I don't see ample evidence for it to be. I, I don't see ample conclusive evidence for that um, because it is also entirely possible that I mean, as a so say I'm a writer and out of nowhere suddenly after a few books that you know got hit you know that that hit it, uh, you know, big in like a niche market or something that I was able to live off of. And suddenly I write something that is hailed as the next great American novel. Um, and then that's amazing. And then, so then a couple years later, I write my next book and it's still good. Uh, you know, probably as good as some of my early work, but clearly not the same level and certainly not received to the same level as what is currently considered my masterpiece. Um, I can see, and especially if that second novel was difficult to write, I could see me as a writer saying, I need to take some time off and reset because, you know, when you have a success at the level that Avengers was, um, it, you know, that can also create kinds of writer's block and creative block that, uh, that fail, you know, there's success can create uh block just as much as failure can. Well, and I think, um, and I think, so I think, whether, and I think, and I'm sure the studio system was a part of it. Definitely. Well, and, but, and, uh, and the, the reports are that he was desperately unhappy while making mm -hmm. age of Ultron, that it yeah. was just, just he, the, the fighting he had to do one, it was a harder film to make. Um, and two, it was just the studio involvement and blah, blah, blah. And the, like, it's, it, mm -hmm. it, um, and I think it's true that yeah. That I guess I should say I question I question the narrative of the 
oh, it was this, you know, he was entering into it completely happy and then the studio just willful, you know, that soulless executives crushed his artistic. No, I don't necessarily it's, think it's usually it's, more two sided. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there's probably a sense of one when he was younger, he couldn't just not do stuff because he needed to pay his mortgage. Um, yeah. Post Avengers. He didn't need to do that anymore. Nope. Um, uh, Probably and, won't for the rest of his life. Um, uh, he He's going to be fine. Um, so he doesn't, he's not forced to write to pay the bills. Um, two, um, uh, after that experience, uh, I mean, one could say the same thing about me. Look, the last screenplay I wrote that got made was Ninjas versus Monsters, which was, you know, I wrote that thing six years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and the the release of that and the, the production and the release of that and especially the release of that was super problematic, soul crushing, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I and I can't yeah. go into why, but soul crushing. Um, yeah, I remember. Um, it is hard to then go, okay, let's start doing it again when you don't have to. When it's like, or yeah. I could just you know hang out with my kids, you know, hang out with my friends. There's, do what I'm going to do. There's stuff something to be said is allowing time for rest and recovery. Yeah. Um, um, I actually find the, uh, um, I recommend to, uh, to actors and or as frequently, it's just like, you know, every now and then take time off because. Let, yeah, let your you fields know, lay fallow we, a little bit. Yeah. Let, oh, that's a great way. Let your fields lay fallow because that's the time when subconsciously you're letting everything that you've learned during the busy season sort of you know, ferminate from not, uh, uh, and fester, certainly not the word. What am I? Ferment. That's yes. it. Ferment. Uh, ferminate. Um, no, I love it. It's fine. Uh, words, are, words are hard. Yeah. Words are hard. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, <laughs> words bad. Um, but that's, it's during that time sometimes. And then you come back and you're like, oh my gosh, I never would have had it not been for the time of rest and recuperation. I never would have been able to do this or think of this. Um, so Joss, uh, vowing that he was going to do something much more personal and, and, you know, not going to work in this big giant studio superhero system anymore. <laughs> What's the next project uh, that he takes? Jaw signs up for Batgirl um, and, and is writing and directing Batgirl um, mm-hmm. uh, for, uh, for DC, which seems like it would be the perfect match, right? Like it's back in oh, superhero. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a major motion picture, but it's, you know, it's more in the vein of Buffy. Um, I yeah, think Batgirl it's a perfect- is, so a Batgirl is sort of the, um, she is not one of the big hitters, yeah. uh, but, but that also allows for a much more personal story frequently. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and, and lets him play in the universe, but then, um, um, through tragic circumstances, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Zack Snyder, um, uh, divisive director, Zack Snyder, um, is, is because of, of a tragedy in his life has to step down from justice league and i mm-hmm. get the i get the very real sense that dc is like well we kind of didn't want him there anyway anymore we were kind of mm-hmm. tied in we had kind of doubled down on what had been considered to be a couple of failures in man of steel well, and batman v superman um, yeah i mean that's the thing no dc film that uh or at least in the main dc universe that uh, Zack snyder has made has been reviewed well yeah. Um, so or, he, or critic. Yeah. Or even you know, with from audiences reviewed yeah. well. Um, and so with him out of Justice League, and Joss Whedon in the fold, it sort of feels like DC was like, well, hey, do we know anybody who's made a Justice League type movie before? <laughs> and in that, there's <laughs> only who one happens person to be on our payroll already. There's, there's only one person on the planet who has. Um, mm-hmm. arguably with the Russo brothers finally following up with Civil War. And as great as Civil War was, it did not do the team aspect nearly as well as Avengers. Um, yeah, and actually I had, uh, of all of the Marvel films, Civil War was the one that I had the most problems with. But yeah. that's for another podcast. Um, uh, so there's there's this, hey, let's do, uh, let's do Justice League with Joss rewriting um, 30% of the script and reshooting a new 30% new ending, new everything that says keep. So this is going to be really weird because Joss, um, I would imagine if they're keeping 70% Zack Snyder, he's going to direct in the style of Zack Snyder because you want it to be mm-hmm. visually you would hope so, yeah. congruous. Um, but I'm, I'll bet that the stuff they reshot was the dialogue was the interpersonal stuff. I'll bet most of it's the possible. stuff. We, I'll bet most of the, most of the dialogue I'll bet has been rewritten 
by Joss mm-hmm. with most of the visual, you know, astonishing visual stuff uh, remaining from uh, from Snyder. I'm really interested to see where Ju- and Justice League comes out in just like three weeks. Yeah, um, I'm very keen to see. It. Well, and you know what's kind of nice about it too is that in a sense it's, um, it's kind of a gosh as an artist what a gift it is because it's the uh, um if it ends up being amazing everyone's going to be like oh my gosh look what Whedon did that's great and if it ends up sucking there's going to be this sense of well it was mostly made by the time he stepped in there was only so much he could do like it's it is a um it's a situation where kind of as an art like as a director you can't lose uh so that'll be interesting to see how it goes um and uh and that is it that brings us up to uh up to speed up yeah. to speed um uh joss uh has been an enormous influence on my life not just my writing but my life um uh changed the way i thought about drama uh changed the the structure of what i like to see um in media changed uh changed my um you know i named my kids after him changed uh the the discomfort Wait, you named both your kids joss yes yes it's it's that's it very, confusing yes yeah. yeah. um uh may uh made it um my acceptance of of non-traditional relationships in 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 fiction um you know brought me to acceptance with it where maybe before i had, i would have mm-hmm. i would have stumbled there um yeah uh uh made me require of of my fiction a level of of depth to the personalities um, of the people in it, um, and also mm-hmm. gave me um, in general. If I find someone who's a big fan of Joss, I think we're probably going to be friends. Um, yeah, because you have to ha- have a well, certain means amount- you think in a particular way. Yeah, yeah, you have to have a certain amount of heart to 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 love uh, Buffy, and it was one of one of the first things that you and I bonded over. Um, and I will, and I'll totally say, and this is absolute mental elitism. Um, you need to have a certain amount of brain to enjoy Joss Whedon as well. Yes. Or yes. to tr- or to truly enjoy him at the level that um, you know that we're talking about. And I would argue that Joss entered into your personal life even more than mine because you had that group forever. Yeah. Although I should point out that was, I mean, um, yes, I did have the Duffy role playing group. Although um, the very quickly that experience became not at all about the characters um, or even the world that uh, Joss had created and much more about the world that we were creating. Um, That was absolutely the most influential role-playing campaign I've ever done. Uh, But as is the case with all role-playing campaigns, uh, very quickly it becomes not about the source material, but about the people that you're playing with. Sure. Um, So I'd say... But those relationships uh, with those people... Again, informed by... Oh, he was, he was a crucial... St- yeah, he was yeah. a crucial... St- like, he was the launching point for it. Um, we would never have played... I mean, we were in the middle of playing a truly god-awful uh, Lord of the Rings campaign. And I feel no compunction against saying that because I was the one running it. Uh, and I will look back at it and say, oh my gosh, that was terrible. I was doing a horrible job. And then one day someone brought in... Uh, the Buffy the role playing uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer role playing game, and we're like, yeah, let's give this one a try, and it just clicked. And ten years later, we're still talking about it. Yeah. Um, um, and interestingly, one of the things that was so fun about it is there was a section in the role playing book that said speci- that it w- there was a whole. And I'd never seen this in any other source book before. How to speak Buffy? It was how do you make because they understood. Look, the dialogue is one of the driving peels of this show. So this is how you can uh, make your characters speak more in this style. Um, you know, I think using using nouns as verbs, uh, you know, to Google something. Yeah. Uh, First time that was, that was ever it. said. Yep. Uh, you know, dropping words like Wiggins in there. Uh, you know, there were just, there was just a whole list of things that just gave you starting off points. Uh, and I thought that was really clever and that certainly helped bring to life the first, first few sessions of the game. Well, and, and beyond that, things like Dr. Horrible, which we're about to talk about, you know, made me think that, wow, I could do, I could write a music. I mean, the stuff he did for, for, you know, independent filmmakers and saying, Hey, 
I can also make my own stuff um, with Doctor mm-hmm. Horrible and and Much Ado and like it's this is a this is a guy whose work has changed media and has has changed you know our lives. So I am uh, I mean look we did this podcast like this has been a huge yeah. thing. This has been the lead into to uh, to totally super um, and uh, and so uh, uh, thanks Joss man thank you yeah. for 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 this. Um, uh, and that's it, man. That's uh, if if you're popping on now, um, go pop on to uh, to the beginning of Buffy the Vampire Slayer season you're, one. You're gonna have to scroll um, way, way yeah, because we've been yeah. doing we've been doing a lot of Joss. You got you got probably a good twenty hours of Joss now, <laughs> all yeah. said and done. Um, man, um, that 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 we've uh, done. Um, we're gonna pop back to you one last time uh, for a final episode of pop off where we hear from uh, some of the other people if i can get them um at the very least we'll hear from mrs j uh and we'll uh we'll hear from arthur one last time and uh whoever else i can get to be on the show just to talk about uh their final notes on anything that we've uh that we've discussed and uh pop culture in general and podcasting and stuff like that um so Mm -hmm. uh uh, this is going to be the last time that you get to say this, uh, Arthur. So um, I'm going to let you uh, lead us out. Uh, okay. Na- wow. That's a lot of pressure. Just yeah. My- to, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Do your uh, thing. So no, you got to say it first. You got to say your name is Arthur. Oh, right. Okay. I just started. Let me put myself in the. Oh, right yeah. Here we go. Oh. For the- <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Red leather, yellow. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, <clears throat> Go. Here we go. This is Arthur. And my name is Justin. And together we are. Popping off. The Totally Super Podcast is coming to Geeks Radio. Justin and Arthur review every superhero movie ever made. Search for Totally Super Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Totally Super Podcast 2017.